you for joining us today at Renovatus, a church for people under renovation. If you have a prayer need, would like to talk with a pastor, or want to share how this message impacts you, we would love to hear from you. Email us at info at renovatuschurch.com. If you desire to support us in the work we are doing for the kingdom of God in Charlotte, you can give online at renovatuschurch.com. We hope you are truly blessed by today's message. Both of our lectionary readings this morning are, um, are actual sermons. <laughs> so, uh, and, and they're not just actual sermons, they're actually sermons preached by the voice of God himself within our theology. Uh, you have one, a prophecy from Jeremiah, which is one of those thus saith the Lord prophecies, right? Like a word directly from God, a sermon, a message directly from God. And then there's uh, the passage from Luke in which Jesus preaches, Jesus being God incarnate. And so Jesus preaches. And so like this week as I'm preparing to, to preach this morning, I'm like, how do you preach what God has already preached, right? Like, what can you say to it or say about it that adds anything if this is a message from God? So we're going to do something a little differently because when we get to the Luke passage, the Luke passage that that this message that Jesus preaches in Luke 5 uh, is a message uh, that is drawn from the, um, the messages of the prophets, the words of the prophets. And you find it throughout Scripture. It's not something that Jesus came up with necessarily. It's something that Jesus drew from the tradition and the theology that he was brought up in. And so we're going to read from Jeremiah... And then we're going to do something that makes us terribly uncomfortable in church. We're going to sp spend some time in silence and let Brother Jeremiah preach to us this morning, all right? Can we do that? Because I think you need to hear Brother Jeremiah's sermon before you hear Jesus' sermon and then before you hear what we might call a sermon from me. Um, because how can you add to what they have already said? So let's listen to the words of Jeremiah. And then we're just going to take a few moments and just let that settle in our hearts and in our minds. And then we'll move on to the Luke passage. Jeremiah 17, starting at verse number 5. Thus says the Lord, Cursed are those who trust in mere mortals and make mere flesh their strength, whose hearts turn away from the Lord. They shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when relief comes. They shall live in the parched places of the wilderness in uninhabited salt land. Blessed are those who trust in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. They shall be like a tree planted by water, sending out its roots by the streams. It shall not fear when the heat comes, and its leaves shall stay green. In the year of drought, it is not anxious, and it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is devious above all else. It is perverse. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, test the mind and search the heart to give to all according to their ways, according to the fruit of their doings. 
Our gospel reading is from Luke. I think I said five while ago, chapter six. And guys, if I sent you the wrong number on that email, it's a typo in my notes, so please forgive me. Luke six, starting at verse 17. And he came down and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the coast of Tyre and Sidon. They had come to hear him and be healed of all their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all in the crowd were trying to touch him. For power came, came out from him and he healed all of them. Then he looked up at his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, revile you, and defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven, for that is what their ancestors did to the prophets." But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. Uh, real quick, I know we are, a, we are a church that's rooted in a Pentecostal tradition. How many of you in here grew up in a Pentecostal, charismatic church, or like a church where somebody might catch the Spirit on a Sunday morning and, and do something out of, the, out of the ordinary? Raise your hand, all right? All right. I was raised in a church like that, so all of you raise your hands. We, we, everybody else may not understand this, but y'all are going to get me, right? So I was raised in a Pentecostal church, and if you know anything about a traditional Pentecostal worship service, you know that there's no such thing as a traditional Pentecostal worship service, right? Like, you don't know what to expect when you come. Like, there's certain things you can expect, but for the most part, you don't know what somebody's going to do, right? Like, you know some people have certain tendencies, and there's certain kind of things that go on, but then from time to time, like, really wild stuff might happen, right? Like, you might go a couple of years and nobody jumps a pew, and then one Sunday, somebody's going to jump, jump like three of them, all right? Um, you just never know. Like, even from week to week, you know, in a Pentecostal, like a real fiery, charismatic Pentecostal setting, week to week, you really don't know what to expect. And if you grew up in a church like mine, we had two services on Sunday, and you didn't even know what to expect from morning to evening, right? Like, it was a big deal if God moved on Sunday morning, because God normally waited till Sunday night to move. Uh, which is why I always invited my friends, if I had to bring them to church, they came on Sunday morning, right? Uh, which is what I really want to talk about, because being raised in that setting and being raised in that kind of church environment, I was, also, was you know, interesting and had its own set of anxieties as you went into church service, especially as a teenager, because you never knew, like, what the Lord was going to reveal to somebody about your teenage sins. And I was raised by parents who... Um, if I was dating a girl, she had to come to church with me, right? Anybody else have parents that made them do that, right? It's like, ah. Yeah, so if, you're gonna, if that's going to be your girlfriend, she has to come to church with you. 
Uh, and even close friends, like if there was a friend I wanted to go spend the night with, I'd be like, hey, mom, this guy from school invited me to go spend the night. Well, he's got to come to church so I can meet him first, right? And, and that's how we met people. That was the ethos of my family. We, we brought people to church with us. Y'all, there is nothing more anxiety-inducing than bringing a friend to a Pentecostal church service. Can I get a witness this morning from my Pentecostal friends, right? Y'all remember what it's like to bring somebody from school to you, to church or youth group or whatever, like you're praying to God. God, if you got to move, hold it off to the next service, right? Like, God, if you got something on me, don't say it now. Right? Like, give me one more week, unless the rapture is going to take place, because, you know, we were definitely afraid that might happen. Uh, and then you might be left behind. And so, like, there was all this kind of anxiety um, that went into that. And, and my parents required that. In fact, even as an adult, there was anxiety around that. Zach and I have been friends for a long time. Several years ago, Zach invited me to his church, and I left in the middle of the service. I mean, I literally got up and left. You remember that? Like, you follow, he followed me. I went out of the lobby and was like, dude, I'm sorry. I just can't do it. <laughs> and, and later on, he came out and said, yeah, man, I think I'm done too. And we went out. There was a very popular faith healer there that night, and it kind of got a little wild and crazy for me. Uh, even being raised in, I was like, yeah, I, I can't do this anymore. Um, so yeah, as a youth and as a teenager, like bringing someone to a Pentecostal church service was weird. It was something that, um, that was anxiety-inducing because you never knew what the Spirit was going to do. You never knew what was going to happen if somebody got filled with the Holy Ghost. And above all else, you just hated all the questions you were going to have to answer afterwards, right? Like, I can't tell you how many conversations I have with, like, wide-eyed teenagers after they came to their first Pentecostal church service. Um, like, you know, some of them were very interested and fascinated, and others of them were just scared to death and had lots of questions. Um, to this day, like, even thinking about it, I get a little PTSD, a little triggered thinking about that feeling I would get in my gut when I knew I had to bring somebody who wasn't part of my church to my church. And it wasn't as if I didn't enjoy church, right? Like, I enjoyed it when I was there, and my friends weren't there to see me, for the most part. Um, it wasn't like I didn't enjoy church. I didn't enjoy that kind of Pentecostal setting. I did, but having an outsider there to see you and to see your people being vulnerable and emotional and spirit-filled was just very uncomfortable for me. It was, it was just very, very uncomfortable. It, it felt like you were inviting the neighbor that you you know, kind of knew, but didn't really know, uh, over to one of your very private and personal family meetings in your home. That's kind of what it felt like. And it felt like there was going to be a lot to unpack, and now they were going to know things about you that maybe you didn't want everybody to know uh, just yet. Our reading from Luke this morning, um, Luke puts Jesus' disciples in a very similar situation. Except in this case, the Pentecostal healing line has already taken place. People have already gathered around Jesus, and he has been healing them. Um, in a very strange observance by Luke, you don't find this in Matthew's leading up to this particular sermon, Luke says that people touched him and power came out of him. And so there was this crowd of people that were around him, and they were already having these very powerful experiences with Jesus. So the Pentecostal healing line was already in progress and had already taken place, but the spectators hung around. 
as these crowds gathered and stayed, Luke says that Jesus lifted his gaze and looked directly at his disciples and began to preach to them. He began to preach to his disciples right there in front of God and everybody. And it wasn't even an easy sermon. It was a hard one. A sermon that's hard to understand. A sermon that's hard to hear and hard to follow. Especially if you're a rich person hearing it, right? It's a tough sermon. And not only that, now that Jesus has done it in front of God and everyone, everyone who was there now knows what is expected of those who claim to follow Jesus. <laughs> Maybe my parents were more like Jesus than I realized. Because for them it was important that our faith and beliefs not be hidden away, especially to those that we were close to, but that they be put on display. That people know what we do and what we believe and what we're about in our faith. You see, as Jesus preached this sermon right there in front of God and everybody, I can't help but think that maybe they had a little gut check and a heart-sinking moment because they were like, man, this is a hard sermon, and now everybody knows that the man we're claiming to follow expects this kind of thinking and behaviors from us. The margins for half-hearted discipleship shrunk exponentially for the disciples of Jesus as he preached this sermon in the presence of a large crowd. The world heard it directly from their leader's mouth. God cares for the poor, the hungry, the despised, and the depressed. And God has great sorrow for the rich, the satisfied, the esteemed, and the happy. Now this is a sermon that could have easily been preached after Jesus read from Isaiah 4 in the synagogue. Remember our reading from a couple of weeks ago? Jesus stood up in the synagogue and read from Isaiah, another prophet who was preaching. And in that passage, the prophet announced that the vocation of the Messiah would be one of a preacher of good news. That the Messiah would be a preacher of good news to the poor, to the prisoner, and to the blind. I want you to get this image in your mind. Because now, directly in the presence of a crowd of people in first century Israel, who were directly affected by poverty, Unfair incarcerations, hunger, hate, and the depression and anxiety that often accompanies those things. Jesus looks his disciples square in the eyes and tells them that despite how the world may judge the people in the crowd behind them, especially those who live on the edges of society, that these are God's people. That these are the people 
whom God has blessed. And that those out there who seem to be the happiest and the most satisfied in life are those with whom God is the most sorrowful for. And those whom God is the most cautious with. Not just here in this passage, but throughout Scripture. There is a narrative, a particularly a prophetic narrative, in which God is consistently telling His people that His favor rests on those who have to put their trust solely in God. That God's favor especially rests on those who are poor and despised and cast out. And that those who have what they think they need and are happy and satisfied must be cautious. And we're still in a season after Epiphany. Uh, some traditions call it the sixth Sunday of Epiphany. Some traditions call it the sixth Sunday after Epiphany. And we've talked about what Epiphanies are. Epiphanies are these moments of revelation, these aha moments, particularly aha moments that are invoked by some type of supernatural or transformative event. And this passage may not seem like an epiphany to us on first reading. It may not seem like one. But the way that Luke frames this particular moment and this particular message, this is a revelation. Even the language here is the language of seeing and not just hearing. Now Matthew has an account of this we often refer to as a Sermon on the Mount. Uh, these are Luke's Beatitudes. Matthew has a set of Beatitudes too. He has a few more. And Matthew doesn't have the same woes that Luke has. Uh, he has less woes. Um, Matthew's version is much longer. Luke's version is much shorter. But even the language here of Luke's leads us into Revelation. Because it's the language of seeing and not just speaking and hearing. In Matthew's account of this sermon... Jesus just opens his mouth and speaks. Here, though, Jesus lifts his gaze. He looks up and looks right into the eyes of his disciples and then speaks. In Matthew, Jesus stands on a mountain and seems to look down on his listeners as he preaches. But Luke has him on flat ground, on a plain. We call this the Sermon on the Plain. Here in Luke, he's on flat ground, right down there with the disciples. In Matthew's version, it's not clear whether Jesus is just addressing the disciples or whether he's addressing the entire crowd. But in Luke, the text seems to indicate that it was just for the disciples while the crowd looked on. But where in all this is the revelation? Where is the epiphany? The epiphany here is not necessarily for the disciples. The revelation was for the crowd who heard it as Jesus preached. Because this crowd came to Jesus needy. They came wanting something that they thought only Jesus could give them. And now they knew. They heard it from the words 
or from the mouth of the man who had just healed them. They heard it from the man who's, who had power coming out of him and into the crowd. That even though they might be poor and hungry and hated and ostracized and depressed and weeping, that God's favor was indeed upon them. That they were indeed blessed. And that God didn't do it in secret. But that Jesus did it in such a way so that now those who claim to follow Jesus would be held accountable to the way that they treated the people that God said were favored and blessed. This was the revelation. They now knew that God was looking at his disciples. That God expected them to know that his favor rested upon those on the margins and the edges of their society. He also wanted them to see and to know that the disciples of Jesus should beware of the kinds of things they put their trust in. Hopefully now, your mind is recalling the words of Brother Jeremiah's sermon earlier. Thus says the Lord, those who cursed are those who trust in mere mortals and make mere flesh their strength, whose hearts turn away from the Lord. Now here in Charlotte, North Carolina, we as a church... We live and we minister in what Flannery O'Connor referred to as the Christ-haunted landscape of the South. The world has read our billboards and our bumper stickers. They've heard our sermons and they've read our tracts. And they have received the message that Jesus loves them. And now they're holding us accountable to that good news. See, the good news is a revelation. It's a prophetic bullhorn. Jesus is not offering anything new in this sermon. He's only preaching what the prophets have preached. And like them, Jesus knows he will die for it. Because that's what his ancestors did to the prophets. Who declared such crazy things. They killed them. Nevertheless, the word is out. The proverbial cat is out of the bag. The church is a community that is called to the prophetic tasks of reconciling the world to God. And it begins with the good news of God's blessing and favor on those who find themselves on the edges of our world. Walter Brueggemann referred to the prophetic task of the church in many different ways. There's a summation quote that's floating around on a meme on the internet, but it was great because it was a good summation quote. Uh, Walter Brueggemann referred to the prophetic task of the church in many different ways, saying, the prophetic tasks of the church are to tell the truth in a society that lives in illusion, to grieve in a society that practices denial, and to express hope 
in a society that lives in despair. A sermon like this, again, I don't really know how to add to it or make it better or give you something you've never thought of before. Because Brother Jeremiah's sermon and Jesus' sermon, they say enough. And they leave the Spirit to do the rest of the work. Because at the end of the day, we will hear this message and we will respond to it in different ways. But hopefully, we will respond to it as the Spirit calls us to respond to it. So I want to leave lots of margins this morning for God to say what only God can say to us. But I want to close with these words from David Ostendorf. As he reflected on this passage, he says, Are we not the bearers, the teachers, the preachers of God's word? Are we not the body of Christ, the church? Are we not the living witnesses to God's love made manifest through Jesus Christ? Indeed we are. And therein lies our woe. God does not take kindly to half-hearted discipleship. God does not bless us as we maintain the status quo, reaping the accolades of the reaping the accolades of those who hear us and follow us. God does not bless us as we bathe in respectability in the eyes of the world. God does not bless us as we quietly maintain a tradition and gloss over or ignore prophetic voices calling us back to God in the church and in the world. God does not bless us as we protect and build institutions and empires. God does not bless us well off, full, comfortable, hardy, and well-spoken of. The realm of God rests among those who have nothing to put their trust in but God. Not only was I raised in a crazy Pentecostal church, and I mean that in a good way, I was raised in a very poor and royal, rural Christian community. You know, it's cliche, but people say it. We didn't have a lot, but we didn't know it at the time, right? Like, we didn't know it. And one of the reasons I can say I didn't know it is because when I got to church, we lamented and we cried, but we also rejoiced. We also sang songs that if we wanted to bask in what we didn't have, we probably wouldn't have been able to muster up the faith or the strength to sing. But we sang about the goodness of God. We sang about how God meets all of our needs. We sang about how when nothing else would come through, how God might come through. Those saints that didn't have a lot of money in the bank account or a lot of property or a lot of wealth or a lot of fame 
preachers who didn't have huge platforms and wouldn't even if social media existed in that day. Many of them not even educated. But their trust was in God. And there was something beautiful about that kind of community who did not put their trust in what they had because they didn't have much, but who relied fully on God. As we hear this text this morning, I hope that we hear as a church that Jesus is calling us to identify with those that are considered the least of these. And I use that term in a way that they are considered that because God does not consider them least of anything or marginalized or edge people, but those that the world considers the least of these. God has called us as the church to identify with them and to be cautious with what we put our trust in. And as we identify with those on the edges, that we will see their testimony and fully put our trust in God. Stand with me. Musicians can come. We're going to close up. Our servers can come on, our prayer partners too. We're going to go ahead and read the invitation. God, it is my prayer this morning. And I hope it is our prayer as a church this morning, God. That we will have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying. We live in a gospel-saturated, Christ-haunted environment here in the South. And in America largely. The cat is out of the bag. Jesus loves us. Now help us as the church to live up to that good news. Help us to identify, to stand in solidarity with, to recognize God's favor upon, those who find themselves on the edges and help us to be the kinds of disciples who follow you who as Paul says live, live lives worthy of the call to be careful what we put our trust in and who we put our trust in and to be a testimony of God's goodness and God's favor and God's blessing among those who may not seem to the world to be blessed and to be favored. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's read the invitation together. This is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love Him and those who want to love Him more. So come, you who have much faith, 
and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed. Come, because it's the Lord who invites you and it is his will that those who want him should meet him here. Now, if that invitation wasn't clear enough, I want to say, if this is your first time with us, or maybe you've been here a few times, I just want to reinforce it. You are welcome at this table. It is open to each and every one of you. However, it's not required, and we're not going to judge you if it's not something you want to do right now. That's fine. But you're welcome to it. You are invited. There is room at the table for you. Thank you again for joining us. We invite you to send your requests and stories to info at renovatuschurch.com and give by visiting our website, renovatuschurch.com. As we close every service at Renovatus, would you join me in praying the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.